So uh, we are in a series, and that series is just a brief series. We're in the middle of it. It's called Winsome. And this idea is how do we go about living out the mission? The mission that God has given us has been very clear. He has made it abundantly clear to us. He tells us over and over again throughout his word. It can be best summarized in the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love others as yourself. It's a 1A and a 1B. If we are going to love God, then we must love people. We cannot love God without loving people. The 1B is to love uh, people in there as well. We love folks that we like, and we love folks that we don't like. We love folks by doing what is best for them in the long run. True love, Jesus tells us on a number of occasions, involves sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus was the one who redefined how it is that we should view neighbors and friends. And so we love God and we love people on one hand. Then what he tells us in the Great Commission is to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations, which means that we want to get this message of God's love, of his character, who he is. There's misperception about him all over the globe. There are assumptions that are made about him that simply are not true. And our job, since we have the truth that has been given to us, his revelation to us to let us know who he is, so that no matter what we feel, we can come back to what the truth is. We get this into the hands of people so they can have a right understanding of who he is. And then when they see who he is, they fall on their knees. When the Holy Spirit works in their heart, we just simply help them grow in their faith. So love God and love people. Make disciples of all nations. This is the mission of the church. Now, oftentimes we can get distracted. I can get distracted into thinking that there's other things that are more important than that, like the color of chairs and carpet and which building we're going to meet in. And how many times is somebody going to do something for me? And how many people show up for this event or that event? Or how many people come to our church or leave our church? I get caught up in that rather than saying, God, help me love you. And help me get this message into the hands of other people. And whatever you want to do, you do. So this series is about how do we winsomely engage. Winsome is a word that we took on. We intentionally wanted to use this. It means attractive or appealing. It's an adjective. It's attractive or appealing in appearance or character. How we go about presenting the person of Christ to a world, we want to do that in an attractive way. Please do not misunderstand me. I am fully aware the scriptures are very clear. To some, that is going to be the stench of death. So no matter how attractively we share this message, there are some that are going to give us the bird, tell us to go away, they want nothing to do it. That's okay. What we want to do is to make sure that we don't put other stumbling blocks in front of them. We want the stumbling block to be the person of Christ himself. And so how do we do this in an attractive way, in an appealing way, in a way that is done with character? So the first week, we just merely said change is inevitable, but change 
can be fruitful. I made a statement. I've had several of you ask this very week. Do I really believe that Wildwood will run out of business, so to speak, in 25 to 35 years if we don't adapt to the culture? Yes, I really do. I'm not in the business of making shock statements. I don't think they're particularly helpful. I really believe this because I believe this is true of every church who does not adjust to where culture has come to. I believe every church is going to fold. There will always be churches that will be available for those who are looking for a church. But they will shrivel. And the impact on the culture at large will be marginal at best. And God will still be faithful. God will still use his church. He will still raise up people. I believe that we must change. I believe that change is inevitable, but it can be fruitful. Let me say it this way. We can resist change and be frustrated with the world's changing ways, or we can embrace change and rest in God's unchanging purposes. God's unchanging purposes, the mission of God, that this gospel message would move forth and that people would respond and we would help them grow in their faith and they would in turn over time help others get introduced to Jesus. We must change our methods without changing the message. If you will, the key passage for this entire series comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's Paul and he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of God's law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. So this way, in another translation of it, I have become all things to all men, that by all means I might win some. And what we said is, Paul never compromised the message. He just adapted his methods based on whether or not the audience was prepared to hear this or not. Peter gave a sermon one way in front of a Jewish audience on a Jewish holiday about a Jewish Messiah. Paul came in and said, let me talk to you about the unknown God. Those people were not looking for a church. They were looking for something. Both groups needed Jesus. How we get him into the hands of people is determined by the culture that we live in. Finally, in review, Jesus is still the ultimate solution to every person's ultimate problem. That will never change. When it comes to mission, everyone battles fear. Every single one of us battle fear to some degree when it comes to mission. Most of us have at least some level of of fear of rejection in the process, that we do not enjoy it particularly when others exclude us, push us out, etc. When there is a rejection of us, most of us have a reasonable, normal, natural, even healthy level of fear. If you do not ever fear rejection of anyone, then you're a cyborg. You need help. It is good for us to say, I don't want to be rejected because in times in which it's really necessary, it helps me curb the way that I respond to folks so I can respond in a more productive manner rather than spitting out everything that comes to my mind. 
Most all of us fear some type of rejection. I don't think that's really what drives us the most, though, in our fear when it comes to mission. I think the primary driving fear for us in mission is this. We fear failure. We fear somehow or another, I am going to mess this up. I am not qualified. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to engage folks. But deep down inside, most of us feel as though I am not worthy to be giving this message to someone else because I don't have the character that's needed to present this message. Now, this is the beauty of Christianity. The message itself is nobody has the character to deserve Jesus. The only person who has ever existed who had the character to share the message is Jesus. And so he tells us, it's not about you. It's all about me, he would say. So don't point others to yourself. Don't worry about your flaws. Point others to me. Go back to the original disciples that Jesus chose. If you are going to start, if you will, a religion of the world, would you start with those 12? Would you say, I'm going to invest into them, get this, for approximately three years, and then I'm going to leave them, and I'm going to let them take over, and I'm going to put it into their hands to get this message to the whole world? Would you do that? Jesus didn't need the 12. He didn't need Moses. He didn't need Abraham. He didn't need David. He didn't need Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He didn't need Tim Keller. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. All he's asking us to do is simply to point others to him. And the Holy Spirit will do all of the work. This is the beauty. You cannot mess this up. Hear me. Your methods cannot mess this up. Your character cannot mess this up. Your reputation cannot mess this up. Others may want to use that as a lame excuse, but the whole message we have is, I'm not good enough. I can't earn it back. I desperately need a Savior. Do you know what the world actually needs? Is not more Christians who are sinning less. What the world actually needs is the, the Christians who are confessing more. That'll run around saying, see, this is why I need Jesus. Because I don't treat my wife the way that I want to treat my wife. I really do. I want to treat her with the, the utmost grace and dignity. I, I want to be perfect to my wife. I promise you, I really do. I want to be perfect to Judith. But I have yet to have a single day in over 28 years of marriage, in which I have been totally and completely perfect. And somehow or another, she still wants to be married. I need Jesus. Ask any of my children. On my best of days, my children will say, he's an all right guy. On my worst of days, they will say, I don't know that guy. And yet my kids still love me. I put my parents through all kinds of difficulty and I made their lives so much more difficult than it needed to be. 
And yet I want to invite you to call my mom or dad anytime you want and ask them what they think about me. They still love me. Why? Because the grace of God has invaded all of those people that I just talked about, invaded their hearts, and they are not expecting perfection. Please hear me. The world may use as an excuse your imperfection and your inability to share this message. It is just an excuse. It smells like smoke and it's from the pit of hell. Do not believe the lie that you will somehow or another mess this thing up. The only way you will mess it up is if you never share. God has used murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars, swindlers, all throughout the scripture. Do you think he needs to change in the 21st century? Are you ever shocked when you hear the news of some pastor that has gone rogue? You shouldn't be. Because that dude is just as human as you are. I feel for him. I feel for his church. And yes, we should expect that there would be greater levels of accountability. But don't ever be shocked at the sin of anyone. When it comes to the mission, everyone battles fear. And I think it's the fear of failure that we battle the most. For the sake of the mission, though, what we'll call us to today is pray for boldness. Pray for boldness to press through fear, to get over yourself, for me to get over myself, for us to get over whatever fear we may have, rejection, whatever. Pray for boldness. For the sake of the mission, pray for boldness. Warren Wearsby, wonderful Bible teacher, um, uh, a man that I have gleaned a great deal from over the years, um, said this on, uh, back in the mid-90s. When asked to explain the secret of his remarkable ministry, the, the noted British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon replied, my people pray for me. St. Augustine said, pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Pray for boldness. Now, I want you to hear me. We can plan for boldness. There's some strategies. I'm going to give us some things here in a minute from the scriptures that I think will be helpful. Pray for boldness. There is nothing in your arsenal like prayer. There is no greater weapon than you have at your disposal than prayer. There is no single greater thing on planet earth that can empower you than prayer. The Holy Spirit, I believe, I wonder at times if he is simply waiting on you to acknowledge how desperate you really are. Just sharing with a gentleman this morning, I've got a, a friend who some recent events that have taken place um, in his life have caused him to realize that he is not in a position to change his own life. He has finally reached a place where he would acknowledge, I can't do this. And I'm telling you, when I heard those words from him, almost two weeks ago, I got the biggest grin. And he looked directly at me and said, what are you smiling at? And I said, finally. 
You have finally humbled yourself. And now the only thing to do is since you're flat on your back, you get to look up and you're about to experience how great the grace of God is. We will pray to the degree that we believe that God is responsible for the results. So my friends, pray for boldness. You will not overcome your fear. And if you try to overcome your fear and your power, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be anything but winsome. And you're going to steamroll people. You're going to try to prove to the world and prove to yourself that you're not going to give in to fear. And so you're going to treat people as if somehow or another they are now a project that is to be improved rather than a person who is to be valued. So pray for, for the sake of the mission. Pray for boldness. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Acts chapter 5. If you are physically able, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4. If you are physically able, would you stand in honor of God's word? We'll read verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You may be seated. The people of God have been pulled into a trial, if you will. It's a meeting and they're trying to discover things. It was the religious leaders of the day putting them on trial. And so they came in to testify and to witness about what it is that they had seen and heard and said, etc. all of this. And they proclaim in there, looking at the religious leaders, hey, this is all an act of God's hand. He has worked out circumstances. He has used every person in this process to bring about his great plan, which was to put Jesus on display. And so you thought you were just killing some dude, but I'm telling you what you actually did was you played right into the hand of God. You put Jesus on a cross. And Jesus now paid the penalty for all who will come to him by faith. There's not a single person on the earth, Jew, Gentile, morally good, morally corrupt. There's not a single person on the world who who is now incapable of having their sins forgiven. Because Jesus has done all of the work. And then he prays. And he says, Lord, look at the folks that are down here in front of us. Look at what they intend to do. They're trying to shut us up. 
And so look what he prays for. Continue, Lord, um, uh, look upon their threats, your servants, to continue to speak your word and with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed that God would do something in the midst of others. And in essence, what they're saying is, God, don't ever let us shut up. They're trying to get us to shut up about this. Don't ever let us shut up. This particular passage closes right there at the end of what we read. And it says that when they had prayed this, the place in which they were gathered together, it shook. It was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, what does this word boldness mean? In our particular culture, we may have a one approach towards boldness. If you were to ask someone right now to speak with boldness regarding some issue in the world, probably what would go through our minds is something that has to do with politics. That you are speaking something to the other side, the people who were over there, the enemy, were speaking something to them so that they might hear the truth according to our perspective. And we want to stick it to them in front of other people. We have the boldness to say whatever is needed to put people in their place. That is not this word. This is a different word. It has a different connotation. This word is used on many different occasions throughout the New Testament. I want to give you some of the ways that it's used. It is plainness or exactness of speech. It is openness, speaking publicly. It is being in the public eye rather than being concealed. In Hebrews in particular and 1 John, the word denotes confidence, which is experienced with such things as faith in communion with God, fulfilling the duties of an evangelist, holding fast our hope, and acts which entail a special exercise of faith. It manifests itself in confident praying and witnessing. Now, this word boldness is not something that has as its grand motive to stick it to someone else. It does not have its motive to put on display how right I am and how wrong you are. What's motive here for this boldness, how it's used throughout the scriptures is, I care so deeply about you that I cannot resist putting the truth into your hands because I want to do what's best for you in the long run. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want to love others as myself. And if I was in the dark, if I was headed towards a place that was of destruction, I would want you to have compassion for me, so I want to tell you. See, there's two dangers, I think, that we can run into, either side, either extreme. On the one hand, we want to resist telling people the truth. And we want to resist telling people the truth because we want to resist coming across as being condescending, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is when we resist people telling, the tr- uh, telling people the truth, we resist telling them that destruction is coming. How loving would it be for a parent who would, out of a desire not to hurt the feelings of their four-year-old, let their four-year-old go out and play on Interstate 10? No, 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 no. 
I don't want to be a controlling parent. I don't want to come across as judgmental. I don't want to hurt someone. So I'm not going to let this four-year-old hear something from me that they probably should hear. No, a loving parent's going to go up and whack the behind of a kid who continues to go out on the street so they might have an understanding that, oh, wait a minute, I go into the street, I get that. I don't like that. They don't have the ability to comprehend at four years old the, all, all the complexities of, of, forget Interstate 10, just Meridian Road or whatever road you want to go down. They don't have the understanding yet. So a parent lovingly approaches their child. I'm not suggesting we spank anyone. I'm not suggesting that we condemn anyone. I'm suggesting that if we choose to come over here and not want to hurt anyone's feelings ever, we're, we're not loving them. The other extreme is to come over here and always and only be telling people how bad they are. Turn or burn. And using every occasion that we have to tell people exactly how stupid they are. This extreme, it, there's nothing winsome about here. Is it the truth? Oh, it's the truth. It's not done in love. I think what we're called to do is to be bold. To initiate, to share, to engage in a dialogue. And if someone wants to respond, we keep on responding. If they don't want to respond, then we back up. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. He's saying that there's all kinds of people out there that are looking for something. Right now, they're not looking for a church, but they're looking for something, and we want to go and engage. And if they want to engage, then let's keep moving in. If they don't, it's okay. We'll move on to someone else who wants to hear. Jonah is a great story in the Old Testament. Jesus sure seemed to think that it was historical and true. I think it was historical and true. And Jonah's a story of a prophet that God goes to. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Assyrians. Now, here's what you need to know. The Assyrians were people that weren't just on the bad list of the Jewish people. They were hated by them, not for frivolous reasons, because the Assyrians had brutalized them. The Assyrians were awful, ungodly, evil in what it is they had done. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to go to these Assyrians, and I want you to tell them, that they have a chance to repent. Jonah says, I know who God is. I know God is compassionate, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. So I know what God's going to do is he's going to use me to simply tell them truth, and then they're going to turn. They're going to turn towards the person of God. They're going to repent of this, and God's going to be gracious and merciful and compassionate. So no, I'm not going to do that. So God actually asked Jonah to go this direction right here. Jonah gets out his front door, and he goes this direction right here. And when he got to this place right here, he could sail even further over this direction. So that was his plan to get away from God. Why? Because he hated people who were not like him. Jonah did it out loud. Jonah was upfront and honest. Jonah wanted nothing to do with the group of people 
that had hurt him, hurt those that he had loved. Jesus has a whole different message. Jesus says, I know you have enemies, and here's what I want you to do for your enemies. Pray for them. And I know you have people that are going to persecute you, and here's what I want you to do. Pray for them. Jesus is not implying that we never defend ourselves. He's not implying that there's never a time in which we go on the offensive to get somebody to stop attacking. Jesus is implying it as a general rule of thumb. I want you to see the enemy as the enemy. And we want to fight for people who we may view as enemies. Paul learned from the Jesus school of thought, although he was trained in the Jonah school of thought. Paul grew up, knew the scriptures, heard this whole new sect, this new religion that was taking place, this, in his mind, false religion. It was about this whole resurrected savior thing. And so Paul goes to go on the offense and to attack those who are preaching Jesus. And so Paul is literally putting people to death. There was a guy named Stephen who was stoned early on in the book of Acts and it says that Paul was holding the clothes of the people who were throwing the stones. Paul was excited that he was defending the honor of God by killing those who claimed to be followers of Jesus. And then on a road to Damascus, this light shines, it blinds him, and this voice from heaven comes out and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus speaks to Paul in an unusual way. Paul gets dropped to his knees. He thinks he's got a pretty good idea. God sends him somewhere else. He goes, gets all the pieces of the puzzle put together. He falls on his knees. He repents before God. He becomes a follower of Jesus rather than a persecutor of Jesus. Paul knew what it was like to hate people. And he had spent his life hating Gentiles. And when he got into this group of Pharisees, Paul became a professional at hating, in his mind, who was the enemy. Paul had a radical change of heart. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, Paul is letting us know there's this armor of God. And we'll begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the purpose of this armor is that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying the enemy is not the people in front of us. The enemy is the enemy. And he's the one that we're trying to fight against. And so put on your armor. And what is his scheme? What is the scheme of the devil? Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer 
and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Paul, who is writing in prison, imprisoned by Rome, hated by the people that he used to serve alongside of. He has already been beaten multiple times. He has been left for the dead. Paul right now says, I want you to also pray for me. Pray for what? Pray that this trial will hurry up and get over with. Pray that God is going to release me from prison so I can do the Here's what he asks prayer for. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is a man that I doubt very few of us in here would think, oh, man, that, that was one weak dude. When we think of Paul, we think of times in which he confronted Peter to his face. We think of Paul getting up again from being stoned and going back into a city to do something again. And what does Paul ask for? Pray for me. Pray that I will proclaim this message boldly. What do you want prayed for? What's at the top of your list right near, right now on your prayer list? What drives you in life? Now, what I'm not saying is that the only thing we should be praying for is boldness. Because in this very passage, Paul says, pray all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. Pray for all kinds of things. We will pray to the degree that we believe God is responsible for the results. So if you're not praying for health, you should be praying for health. Don't put all your trust in doctors as wonderful as they are. If you're in legal trouble, pray for God to help. As wonderful as lawyers are, and they are, they're not the ultimate solution. Okay? Pray for all kinds of things. But do you pray for boldness? Or is the mission of God just simply not on your radar? Paul had a unique calling. We not are all called to be Paul's specifically. Paul was called specifically by God in time and space in a unique moment to put, put, put together the scriptures, etc. But the heart of Paul, I think, is the heart of all true believers. We want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we want to love others as ourselves. And the best way that we can love others is to do what's best for them in the long run. And that's to introduce them to our, to our friend Jesus. I want to close with just giving you a few things. Boldness means praying with desperation. Boldness means caring with empathy. And boldness means speaking with clarity. Failure in the mission is not failure to win people to Christ. 
Failure in living out the mission is when we fail on our end to reach towards other people. God does the saving. God does the changing. God does the stirring. God does the moving. Our job is simply to reach out and to find out who is searching for something. And then for us to introduce them in a conversation Would you like to know more about this? So I close with these three thoughts on reaching people. Number one, pray for boldness. If you are not currently praying for boldness in your own life, pray for boldness. Pray for boldness for your spouse. Pray for boldness for your pastors. Pray for boldness for every member of this congregation that God would use us in the process. Number two, take a step in With somebody you have in your circle of influence, take one step in spiritually and just ask them about their spiritual life. Ask them something like this. Do you go to church? And if they say, yeah, I I go to church and say, fantastic, where do you go? And if they say, you know, every Christmas I go to this church and it's way out north and Easter I go there too and I can't remember the name of this pastor but he's up on the corner of Meridian and Oxbottom and, and you say, that's great, that's my church too. Or maybe they say some church you've never heard of and you just say, great, tell me about your church. And when they back up and when they, it becomes clear to you, they don't want to talk about spiritual things, then guess what you do? You take a step back as well and say, hey, thanks so much for sharing How about your kids? How are your kids doing? If you take a step in and you say, hey, would you consider yourself to be spiritual in nature? And they say, nope. In fact, I think all religion is stupid. Then say, just checking. (laughs) To see the game this weekend? Just take a step in and follow the mirror principle. And if they step in, you step in. If they step back, you step back. If you want to know how to do this, I promise you, I would love to show you how to do this. Bigger for the better part of two decades now, I've been meeting with people who would not consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. And I have yet to have someone tell me, you are obnoxious. I can't stand, I have yet to have someone tell me what we just did was an utter waste of my time. And yet I've had many people over the years say, this whole Jesus guy, uh, but everyone has said, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to investigate. This has been well worth my time. I would love to show you how to do that because people aren't projects. Their souls. When it comes to the mission, everyone battles fear. My friends, for the sake of the mission, pray for boldness.